The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Acts 19, 11 and 20 and 23 through 28. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. She whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, church family, how we doing? Good to see y'all. If we haven't met before, my name is Garrison. I'm on our leadership team. I'm also one of our deacons. Excited to get to be with you tonight. Uh, If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. If you're using one of our Bibles, we're going to be on page 541. If If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for that to be your Bible. That's our gift to you. Um, We're intentionally ending our series tonight in the book of Acts by looking at a church plant. And this church plant is in the ancient city called Ephesus. And we're doing that intentionally because next week we're starting a new series going through the book of Ephesians. That's a letter in the Bible that Paul wrote to this church that we're going to be looking at tonight. So tonight's a little bit of a twofer. We're both closing down our series on the book of Acts and also looking forward to Ephesians by kind of getting a little bit of their backstory. I'd also love to call your attention just a little handout that you have on your seat. Uh, I'd love for you to read that sometime in the coming week. That's just some good background information on top of what you're going to hear tonight to just get you ready for this sermon series. Read it the next week or tonight if you get a little bored, honestly. A little light sermon distraction reading. Whatever you want to do. 
Um, I don't know about you, I have found this series that we've been doing on Acts to be really helpful for me. It's been really good for my soul. Uh, Kind of the funny way that I've been describing it, maybe making fun of it a little bit, if we're being real, um, is I've kind of just said that it's really refreshingly and wonderfully repetitive. Just kind of said the same thing every week. We've tricked you a little bit. Like, that's kind of what we're talking about in teaching team a little bit. How can we do the same sermon just in a different way? Just a little bit. Not as much as that. Here's kind of what I mean. The sermons, basically, if you boil them down, what we've talked about every week is this. The Spirit of God advances the kingdom through the sacrifices of God's people. We've said that every week. The Spirit of God advances the kingdom through the sacrifices of the church. We've tried to be creative, but that's what it boils down to. God is moving in our city, in us. Let's join in. It's been really helpful for me because it's honestly, it's just exposed me. It's exposed my heart. It's exposed my sin, which might sound a little bit weird. Like, why is that refreshing? Why is that a good thing? Hear me out. I could tell you what the Bible says about mission. I could quote some verses to you. I could tell you what the, the Bible talks about when we're mentioning prayer. That God is present, that He's powerful, that He's accessible. But how does that show up in my actual life? What's that look like on a Tuesday? Does my life actually look like it's marked by what I say I believe? If I'm being honest, the answer a lot of times is no. What about you? Kind of what is being exposed there is our functional beliefs. We have two different types of belief. Confessional belief and functional belief. Confessional belief is what you would say with your words, what you would affirm even with your mind, that this is absolutely what I believe about the gospel, about God, about what the Bible says. But our functional beliefs actually reveal what we really, in fact, believe. Another way you could talk about it is your head knowledge versus your heart knowledge, right? Where you would say, of course, of course I care about the 125,000 non-believers within five miles of this building. Of course I care. I care also how much we spend on those packing peanuts, It's crazy. But do I know my neighbor's name? When I go outside and talk to them, what what happens? They're kind of do a little wave and soft smile and beeline back to the door. Do I engage with them? When my life is stressful, when I'm out of control, what do I do? I believe that God is present. I believe that He's available. But do I pray? A lot of times it's no. My my life is marked by self-sufficiency. By trying to do it on my own. That's exposing my functional beliefs. And honestly, as we're preaching, as we serve you as a teaching team, what we're trying to do is help you see that discrepancy over and over again. Because these so-called basic truths are the things that we actually need the most. We're trying to point that out over and over again. That's why we are repetitive. All of that to say, what I'm going to do tonight is also incredibly repetitive. There's nothing new. It's just another way to say the big idea, and that's this. Following Jesus is disruptive. Following Jesus is disruptive. Here's how we'll see it tonight. One, following Jesus, it's going to disrupt your life. Following Jesus is going to disrupt your life. And then two, following Jesus will disrupt our city. I'll unpack unpack those as we go, but that's essentially what we're going to see tonight, that following Jesus is disruptive. So let's hop in to Acts 19. We'll start in verse 11. Read with me. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
So the first 10 verses of this chapter, we're actually getting a little bit of the backstory where Paul's showing up in Ephesus and he's starting to preach. He's starting to disciple people. He raises up leaders. And what goes along with that is he's starting to do some miracles and the power of God is moving. He's preaching. The miracles are happening. I mean, it's literally saying that his Kleenexes are being picked up and then they get taken home and mom's walking again. Like there's just these miracles that are happening out of nowhere. And the power of God is being displayed. And what's about to happen is some other people Namely, the Jewish leaders are going to see this and they're going to try to capitalize it. Look, on, look back in verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. In other words, they're literally trying to co-opt the name of Jesus because their job is to exorcise demons. It's not really working well for them. So they're like, let's try what Paul's doing. So seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So these guys are trying to hijack Jesus' name to try to capitalize on make their ministry a little bit better, have a little better luck in casting out demons, and it's not really going super well for them. The Jesus or the demon isn't really having it. Let's see how it plays out for them. Look at verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Quick discernment training. If you get in a fight and you leave the fight naked and wounded, I do not need to see the other person. You lost the fight. These guys are embarrassed. They're, they lost. They're done. Look back at verse 17. Here's what's actually important. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So in Ephesus... Uh, a lot of the population was caught up in this weird paganistic type of magical practices. Essentially what they would do is they would compile these books of spells and incantations where essentially they're writing down different prayers, different uh, recitations to essentially try to get some type of supernatural power or a deity, uh, a Greek or uh, Roman deity, to just do something for them. And they write them down, they put them into this book, and then they sell it for a ton of money. This is their livelihood. This is a lot of how they made their money. But once all of these people see what, what goes down, where true power actually is, who the God of that universe really is, they see that it's worthless. See, that's not uh, worth anything. They bring everything that represents their way of life before Jesus, and they throw it into a bonfire. And this isn't a small bonfire. They don't just take some of their stuff. Look back at verse 19. It says, And they counted the value of them, that is their books, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. If you run those numbers today, it's about $6 million. This isn't a small thing. They're throwing away all of the things that represented value in their life. Finish up in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is point number one. Following Jesus will disrupt your life. Following Jesus will disrupt your life. We see the power of God put on display through Paul here. And inversely, we see that these other Jewish teachers who are trying to 
utilize this power. It's not working out for them. And what ends up happening is these followers of Jesus bring everything and they burn it. They throw it away. They destroy it. That, that, their life was disrupted in a major way. Their lives were bent around witchcraft, around worshiping a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And that's just where it started. They also worshipped money, the idols of their heart, money, status, power. He's ruled over these people. And now they're literally just tossing it away into a fire. Following Jesus has always worked this way. In their culture and in our culture, following Jesus is necessarily disruptive. It will always be disruptive. So if you, if you think about this, um, Jesus in Matthew 16, 24, he says that the, the point of life is to pick up your cross daily, to deny yourself and come follow him. Literally, to come follow him and die. That is going to be necessarily disruptive as Americans when what we hear every day is do whatever you want. As long as it makes you happy, it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's what life is all about. They're the opposite so they will be nece- this will be necessarily disruptive. Another one, Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, that life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. That will be necessarily disruptive to us as Americans who live in the objectively most materialistic culture ever. They're opposites. It will be necessarily disruptive. Following Jesus necessarily disrupts your way of life. Now, don't think it has to be earth-shattering. Don't think you've got to have a $5 million bonfire on a Saturday. Maybe, maybe Jesus disrupting your life won't look like that, but maybe it'll look like actually stripe, striking up a conversation with that neighbor that you want to avoid eye contact with. It will look like inviting them to church on a Sunday. Maybe it'll look like having a conversation with your coworker, and you know they're not a Christian. You're kind of worried about it, right? Like, this is going to be really awkward. Following Jesus, letting Him disrupt your life look like stepping in and having that conversation. It can look like a bunch of different things. Uh, that tends to be a problem. It tends to be a problem for me. It's one of the ways I've been exposed in this series. It's because we don't want our lives to be disrupted. Whether you would outright say that or whether it's just evident from how you live your life. Your functional beliefs getting exposed again. We don't want our lives to be disrupted. We kind of just want to add Jesus in. We want Jesus to bless our lives, to prosper our lives. We don't want to reorient our whole way of life around Him. We want the opposite. We want the things that He'll give us. We want peace. We want ease. We want comfort. In a way, we want to add Him to the already established pantheon of gods that we also worship. Um, I think there's a problem, both within us as a church, but also in our culture, especially in the South, where we just kind of want to tack on Jesus. It's just a thing that you add to almost your resume of life. It's like, oh, of course, I I do the Christian thing. I sprinkle a little Jesus over my already completed life. My life's pretty good. I got it made. Like, it's not perfect. There are things that I would like, but overall, it's pretty good. I guess I should do that Jesus thing because that will ensure that my afterlife is good as well. It's a little bit like an afterlife retirement account. But that is not how it works. Dallas uh, Willard, a, a theologian and professor, he responds to that type of sentiment like this. He says, but someone will say, can I not be saved? That is, get into heaven when I die without any of this. 
But you might wish to think about what your life amounts to before you die, about what kind of person you're becoming, about whether you really would be comfortable for eternity in the presence of one whose company you've not found especially desirable for the few hours and days of your earthly existence. And he is, after all, one who says to you now, follow me. Here's his point. If you don't want Jesus running your life now, why would you want that for eternity? Why would you double down times of infinity? You don't like it now. If you decide to follow Jesus, you're signing up for a regular disruption of your life. And in fact, if you've never encountered any type of disruption when you, uh, in your relationship with Jesus, I would question whether or not you've actually encountered the real Jesus or not. I'm being intentionally heavy-handed. But the beauty is actually when we do this, when we actually step in, when we allow Him to disrupt our lives, when Christians do this, we begin to see what the church in Ephesus actually saw, which is that the power of God begins to be displayed mightily. When you allow Jesus to disrupt your approach to your schedule, by saying, I'm going to make time for him in the morning or at night. Or I'm going to carve out just an hour, 15 minutes a day for him. And you decide to get serious about spiritual disciplines, about community, about showing up. You're fighting your idols. And you're fighting the rhythms of our culture that are bent around busyness, around hurry, around self-centeredness. And you will begin to see the power of God more clearly in your life. When you allow Jesus to disrupt how you approach your relationships by being willing to sacrifice your comfort and your fear of man, and you step in and have hard conversations, when you're willing to live in the light, when you're willing to confess your sin, when you're willing to show up to community group, even when your kids are monsters, when it's been a hard day at work, you're actively fighting against your own idols, and you're going to see the power of God more clearly in your life. Not, not perfectly, not, always, not immediately either, but the power of God will be seen more clearly in your life. And just like the church in Ephesus, the name of Jesus will become more known to those around you. That's what we're seeing here, that the name of Jesus became more known in this city. Look back at me, you'll see it even more. Verse 23 says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, followers of Jesus are kind of making waves in Ephesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So another big form of worship in this city was of the goddess Artemis. The temple was in the middle of the city. Everyone had these little silver idols of Artemis. And once again... Once all these people become Christians, they're throwing them away. And they're not buying any new ones. So this, this guy Demetrius is coming together being like, hey, the economy is falling apart. This is not working. He calls a meeting. Look at what he says, verse 25. It says, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. 
and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So he's literally saying, we're losing money. We can't live anymore because of these Christians. This Jesus guy is not good for the budget. And what happens next is this meeting turns into a riot. Like thousands of people begin to riot in the city of Ephesus because of what these Christians are doing. Here's here's my second point. Following Jesus will disrupt our city. Following Jesus will disrupt our city. It It not only affects your way of life, it will affect everyone around you. It will affect our city. So many people follow Jesus here that the local economy has crashed. That type of stuff can happen. Following Jesus has impacted so many people here that the very city felt the shockwaves of men and women throwing away their idols, throwing away their way of life to embrace Jesus. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I pray for that for our city. Not just with us, not with, obviously for our church, but also all of the other churches that we would be, the power of God would be so evident in our church family, in our lives, that our city would change. Like, imagine if strip clubs in the city of Charlotte shut down for business because people weren't showing up to objectify people anymore because God had done such a work in their life that they're walking away from this. Can you imagine if child service workers, if DSS, had to redo their whole org chart because all the children were adopted or fostered because families said, we have been adopted by the God of the universe, so we want to do the same. Uh, what, if, uh, what if homeless shelters didn't exist anymore, shut down for business because we were stepping in and providing homes for people, inviting them into our own homes, stepping in and providing for those in need? Um, this is a big one for me. What if divorce rates plummeted? What if, what if divorce rates plummeted because Jesus was redeeming marriages? Because individuals in the relationship were being transformed by the power of God? so that they could forgive as Jesus had forgiven them. This type of stuff is what is on the table. when we we got to pray for it. This is possible. These are things that can happen when people start to follow Jesus in a city. It will impact the very life of the city. And once again, it won't happen like that. It, It takes time, it takes effort, and it takes the power of God. And it wasn't easy for them. It will not be easy for us. Um, The vision of a church and a city being disrupted by the gospel, I hope that's what you are praying for. That is certainly what we're going for. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Something I hope we're dreaming about a lot, but it is not easy. Um, Something pretty interesting, I I think, uh, about this church is if if you fast forward Um, A couple books in the Bible. I won't spoil too much because we're about to do a whole series on this. But if you look at Revelation 2, that's the last time this church is mentioned. Jesus' words to this church are that you've forgotten your first love. That's that famous phrase. That's to this church. You've forgotten your first love. They've drifted for some reason away from the love that they had at first. For one reason or another, following Jesus had ceased to be disruptive in their life. And instead, everything else had begun to disrupt their love for Jesus. That same danger 
exists for us, for all of us. Um, here's how I see it play out. I've, I, I guess I've done the Christian thing for, for a while. I've uh, been in ministry for a while. The kind of pattern I see with, with lives is very sad. But people meet Jesus and they're all in. You've probably seen this. You've probably experienced this. You're all in. You're singing songs. I will build my life. I will build my life. Hallelujah. I am not alone. Maybe you get a Bible verse tattoo. Maybe Greek. I don't know. I don't know. Agape might be in the cards. Basically where you're at is I will do whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes to follow you, Jesus. It's a beautiful thing to see, but years go by. A year, two years, five years. What starts to happen is it's not, you're not fully away from Jesus, but where you're at is, I, yeah, I love Jesus. Also, I, I mean life. I got kids now. A family. I don't have a family. That's the problem. Like I need some things from Jesus. He's not really holding up his end of the bargain. I love him, of course. Of course. And what it ends up turning into is, uh, yeah, maybe I'll try to fit in Jesus somewhere, but I'll take the world. I'll settle for that. I'm liking what I'm getting over here. It's very sad. And I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. I think the first one is excuses. A couple of different reasons we drift. Excuses. You can do it with your money. You can say, ah, oh, yeah. You wouldn't say it like this, but really what it boils down to is, yeah, can't really give this month. Um, got a little trigger happy on Amazon. It takes one click, guys. One click. Uh, ate out too much. I mean, whatever it is. I can't give. I just, you know, sorry. Can't do it. Maybe you do it with romantic relationships and you think, oh, I can, I can probably date this non-Christian. You wouldn't say it that way. The way you would say it is, I mean, they're open to it. They don't hate Jesus. Like, they go to church with me and we're not having sex that often. Please, guys, don't ask that. You can do it with your time, with community. You're like, oh, I love, yeah, community was great. I got kids now. Or I'm going through just this season. This is just season of my life, guys. Season of life is probably the biggest excuse I see. And the danger with it is that your season of life just becomes your life. And your season where you're not giving turns into a life of greed. And the season of introversion turns into a life of isolation. And your season of busyness becomes a life of selfishness. And then you end up not knowing how you drifted from Jesus, but it was because you let a season of life become your life. And before you know it, everything else has disrupted your love for Jesus, just like it had for the Ephesians. Um, second way I think we drift is pretty unique to us, especially as a, a new church. We can, uh, we can build our lives on yesterday's sacrifice. We can build our life on yesterday's sacrifice where last week, last month, last year, I did so much. Like I helped like five people move in a weekend. But I haven't helped anybody move in five months now. And my excuse is because I did that really hard weekend. It can be whatever. It can be different things. It could be that you showed up to a gathering four out of four weekends. That amazing. But now I'm 50-50. Same thing with community group. I don't know how it shows up. 
but you can build your life on yesterday's sacrifice, especially as a new church where we're stepping in, where we're serving, and then we're tired. It's like, somebody else will do the thing. Listen to me. Don't, don't build your life on yesterday's sacrifice. We do not have an out. We get to step in. I think the funny thing is at the heart of both is, is a type of disruption, a bad disruption. The drift is a disruption, a, a move from where you were at first, where six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, you were so in love with Jesus. And now, I'll see how he fits into my life. And, and what Jesus is saying here to this church in Revelation 2 is he's saying, don't get lured into that. I'm begging you, do not get lured into that. He's warning them. He's warning us to guard against that. He's encouraging us to continue and for many of us to rediscover the love that we had at first. And that, and that is my closing point. As we start to close, that is my closing point, is to keep on letting Jesus disrupt your life. I don't know what that looks like for you, but keep letting Jesus disrupt your life. Here's what I think it can look like. Every time that Jesus or the Scriptures teach something that confronts you, or you're like, I don't want to do that. I'd kind of rather do my own thing. You can view that as an opportunity or a threat that can be big or small. So if you look at your community group, I know I joked about that with the season of life. When it's, oh, do I show up again? Do I show up this week? I'm kind of tired, rough day. Or somebody's moving again. How many people are going to move in this church? Too many. You get faced with the threat of your comfort of giving up your Saturday or Sunday or whatever it is, or you can see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to step in and serve your brother or your sister, and actually an opportunity for you to be formed more into the image of Christ who is willing to lay down His life for you, to sacrifice everything for you. You get, to, you get the opportunity to step into that, to be formed more into His image, which by the way, just confession, this one is the one for me. Like, I do build my life on yesterday's sacrifice. Like that, that's the one. I do not, I hate saying it this way, it's just blunt. I don't like serving. I don't. It's terrible. Like, we took the spiritual gifts seminar, and it was like, I, my service score was like in the single digits. It was just like, oh, this is terrible. And I would love to use that as like, I guess I'm not gifted. I, I can't do it. That's not an out I get. Selfishness is not an out that I get. And I get to see every opportunity or every instance as an opportunity or as a threat. Or I can say, oh, I can just do my own thing. Or I get the opportunity to step in, to serve, to be formed more into the image of Christ. And we get to do that as a family. Like I need my community group. I need all of you to ask me about that stuff. And we need to do the same to everybody else. That's what family is about is I need people, not just in my group, but when we're striking up small talk, to be like, hey, how is sacrificing for the kingdom of God, Garrison? And I'll probably make a joke to try to distract, but I need you to ask it, and I need to talk about that even when I don't want to. The same is true for you. When you're thinking about, if you're single, when you're thinking about who you want to date, we also get to help out as those who aren't dating, if you're married or just single and not dating. You get to help out our single folks, by helping them ask the question, do you think that this person will love Jesus more than you? 
That's going to be the question that you need to ask. Because you can see it as a threat or as an opportunity. What we're trying to do is to push in and say, hey, is this actually about Jesus? Or is this about your approval idolatry? This is about you feeling lonely. Because the right way to go about it is, do they love Jesus more than you? And that might be hard to answer. So here's the subcategory. Are they a part of a church family? Do they have community? Do they serve? Are they an overall decent human being? Even more, do they spend time with Jesus? Like, is it evident that they have a relationship with Him? If the answer to those questions is yes, I think we are on the right track. Um, when you're reviewing your budget and you get prompted by the Holy Spirit to redo your budget, and, and He's saying, hey, you need to actually be a little more generous in, in this, this time of your life. What happens is you can see that as a threat. You can see that as a threat to your vacation, to your golf game, Maybe to your frisbee golf game, or your bathing suit, so, you know, summer season coming up, whatever. Or you can see it as an opportunity, an opportunity to sacrifice, to say, I'm willing to live with less so that I can bless people, so that I can pour out my life as Jesus did for me. He was so generous for us. See it as an opportunity or as a threat. There's a way to see every prompting by the Holy Spirit as a problem in your life, as a barrier to your joy, or you can see it as an opportunity to actually follow Jesus, to be changed, to be transformed. The difference, it, it actually comes down to one thing. Do you see Jesus as better than everything else? Do you think that Jesus is better than everything else? Do you think He's more beautiful than the world's best thing? Do you think He's more lovely you think he's more worthy than the world's best thing? Because he is. That's what the Ephesians began to see. They threw everything away. That begs the question, how do we get there? How do you get there? How do I get there? What happens to a person, to a city that results in what we saw in this Ephesian church? Throwing away millions of dollars. I think it's pretty Simple but beautiful answer. You have to see Jesus. You have to see Him on the cross, laying down His life for you, betrayed, dying for you. You've got to see Him raised to give you life. He knew that you'd resist Him at times. He knew that you would drift away from the love that you had at first. He knew, um, he knew every instance that you would bow down to an idol. And He still went to the cross. He knew all of your excuses and He still died for you because He loves you. Because He loves us. That is how a life of disruption begins. That is the only way a life of disruption can happen. We don't go out and say, oh yeah, I'm going to do all these things for Jesus so that He'll love me more. No. The foundation is His love for us. That is the foundation. That is the end. That is the means to get there. Knowing Jesus, loving the God who loved you first. When you believe that, Jesus will change your life. He will change our city. He will begin to see all of these things that we are praying for. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are thankful for space to get together. Thankful for our church. 
God, that you have made us into a people. We had, we had nothing to do with it. We needed you to live the perfect life we never could, to die the death that we deserve to be risen from the grave for us. God, thank you for making us right with the Father and also with one another. Lord, please help us to recognize the discrepancy between our functional and our confessional beliefs. Help us to repent. Help us to see any, any instance where we go towards our comfort, towards our own way as an opportunity to follow you more deeply. Help us to resist the pull towards the world and valuing what our city values, the, the idols of our city. Help us to see you on the cross dying for us. Pray that that would be the foundation. We pray it all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.